0: This is the Dallas Morning News. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
1: everybody. Welcome to Sports Day Insider, presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by Evan Grant and David Moore. Uh, it's, a, it's the weekend after a, a big Cowboys win over the lowly Panthers. Uh, it was also the weekend that Jim and Jerry finally buried the hatchet, not a, in each other's backs either, they uh, have decided that they're going to, Jerry's going to put Jimmy into the Hall of Honor, the Ring of Honor, excuse me. Uh, and so that was front page news of the Dallas Morning News. David Moore wrote about that. So, David, had they had been hatching this for a little while then that, that they were going to make this announcement uh, in Charlotte. Well, my understanding
0: was that the, the, the detente or the thaw started about uh, four or five weeks ago. Where they first started discussing, well, look that the time has come, and many Cowboys fans would tell you past time. But uh, you know, let's get this done. What makes sense? are you know, are you still amenable to it? How can we do it? And you know, they met and uh, spoke before the game and were very amicable uh, before that Monday night game against the Chargers in L.A. Uh, so that that kind of set the public scene. But my understanding was they had already kind of begun some conversations by then. Um, they looked at the schedule. They determined, Jerry determined he wanted it to be this year. Uh, December 30th against Detroit, a home game is the one that makes sense. Uh, also from the aspect that another key architect of the Cowboys last uh, championship run, Troy Aikman will be in the booth, uh, for ESPN calling that game. So, uh, that factored into it as well. Uh, Aikman has been very vocal through the years about how this needs to happen and, and how that would kind of tie a bow around that, that, uh, legacy, if you will. So all that came together conversations. and, And I think some of this, you know, it's interesting, um, yeah, they were both asked why now and, and, and Jimmy Johnson's response was, Well, because I'm still alive. And everyone kind of chuckled, but I do believe mortality played a role in this. I mean, these are these are two men that have uh brashly came into this league, uh won against conventional wisdom, uh, altered, you know, how things were done in some respects, and They've been, here, you know, together, they have 161 years on this earth. And I think there's just a sense of, you know, why? I, I guess we could keep this dance going, but why? And so they finally uh, decided, let's, let's do this.
1: I think it's because Jerry was waiting all this time for a game he was reasonably sure he could win. And that was it. <laughs>
0: That was that was Carolina, so they figured, yeah. well, we better do it on the road in someone else's stadium.
1: Exactly. No, I don't know. You know, it. it, it I, I do think obviously they have had such a mercurial relationship. You know, yeah. they've been all over the map, and and uh, it probably there's never been more than about you know three or four months at a time they ever liked each other. Uh, they're, they're kind of like, they are like siblings in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, and that's what uh, Terry
0: Bradshaw said, you know, Jimmy Johnson used that analogy. He said, uh, Terry Bradshaw would come up to him after he would see Jimmy and Jerry together at a uh, hall of fame functions in Canton and just go, why are you guys still like this? I mean, you clearly have an affinity for each other. Uh, you know, the way you joke, the way you cut up, the way you laugh, uh, uh, the way you go at each other, but it's all kind of good natured and competitive way. Why? Why is this continuing to linger? And both men have uugos, a lot of pride, and you know, I really think I, I was talk some people, and and I I really think on why you know there are a lot of people in Jerry's inner circle who came to think too that you know he's just not going to do it. You know, he he just won't do it now. I think he's become too hardened on this. and But I really think it began to shift this year before the season when they announced that DeMarcus Ware was going to go into the Ring of Honor. That press conference was dominated with questions about, well, why not Jimmy Johnson? Uh, When is Jimmy going to go in? The walk-off... With Jerry that day was dominated, getting into his you know relationship with Jimmy Moore and and frankly, Jerry just dug in even more about well you know th- there may be a couple of other coaches that go in there or er, er, just as deserving as Jimmy to go in there. I mean, just ridiculous statements for what you know he meant to the franchise and, and what he meant to him too personally. But Has, I've got I,
2: I've got a question about yeah, this. I was just
0: going to say really quick. I was going to think I really think. Jerry finally realized, if I don't put Jimmy Johnson in, every single person I put in before him is going to have, is, you know, they're not going to get the full attention. It's going to be on, well, this person doesn't deserve to go in before Jimmy. Why wouldn't you put Jimmy And it really takes away from the honor and the celebratory nature of being in. And I really think that's probably why he changed here and relented.
2: So he finally he 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 came to that realization this year after like 15 years of the same question because I mean I'm yeah. I'm tired of it and yeah. I, I mean it's it's just been nonstop I I'm just wondering if there's I don't know anything else that's happened in the last six weeks on the Dallas Fort Worth sports landscape that would make Jimmy or Jerry I should say decide. You know, I, I should do something that really celebrates my, my here franchise <laughs> um, and, and takes headlines back. Uh, and shy of winning a Super Bowl, I wonder if there's anything I could do uh, because the team across the street suddenly is the hottest ticket on the planet.
1: Well, let's not say planet. That's a little much, okay? Were you, are you selling these tickets or something? Oh, let's Come say on. the
2: hottest <laughs> ticket in town, what okay? You
1: get? Okay, yeah. Uh, I I I do think that one of the reasons why it never happened was, besides the animosity between the two of them, uh, certainly initially, was the fact that Jerry was just determined to win a Super Bowl without him. You know, I I always thought that as soon as they won a Super Bowl, that the next year he would put Jimmy in because then he could say, "See, I did this without you. I didn't. Right. I, I, I could. I could do this without you." And now it's to David's points, and all of that. I think is is accurate. I think he just felt like, "Hey, man, you know." We both made it to 80. Who thought we either one of us would yeah. live this long and, and and we need to do this and get it over with. And, and plus all the other reason you talked about it. And I do think that it, it does seem to me just the limited exposure I get to Jerry these days, which is usually just after the football games. Right. Uh, is that he just seems to get more and more emotional all the time. You know, he's always sure. been a very emotional guy, but he, he just seems to get more sentimental all the time the older he gets, which is fairly predictable. He for talks about like that. Him.
0: Yeah, he's yeah. he talking about being more reflective and being more emotional and, and sentimental than he was earlier. I, I, so, I, Andy, I,
2: you, you,
1: you're clearly not a fan of this whole thing, Evan.
2: No, I mean, I think it should have happened 15 years ago for crying out loud. I just don't understand why it's it's taken this long. I mean, and 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 God. God bless them, you know, that if they did realize their mortality and that they need to bury the hatchet once and for all and that they need to move on and that fans want this and his fan base wants this, um, great. But I just feel like this dance that we've done year after year, it's just like the conversation we had last week, right? We That every Cowboy game becomes a referendum, on whether or not Dak Prescott can take them to the yeah. Super Bowl. And it feels like every Cowboy season has become a referendum on when the hell is Jerry going to put Jimmy Johnson in the Ring of Honor? Um, and so I, I guess the, the, the cynic in me is just like, great. I mean, I'm, I'm happy for this, and I, I think it should be celebrated, but I just don't understand why I still do not understand why it has taken so long to get to this point.
0: Well, well, once you get to that point, you never understand thing. it, right? I mean, yeah. that's the thing. It, it doesn't make sense that it went this long. So you're always going to be a little Well, why now? You know, you hear people go, "Oh, do one of them have an under, or both of them have an underlying health issue that we don't know about that's going to come out?"
2: You know, you, you wonder about that, that. right? You, you certainly wonder about that.
0: And again, but you're you're going to imprint those things on a on a on a process that was nonsensical and was. um Emotionally and peddly driven all these years, right? <laughs> and look, this is not look. Jerry did retain control because he's a one man committee on who he puts in there. But people should not act like Jimmy Johnson hadn't been pushing Jerry's buttons through all these years too. And you know they both push, e- push each other's buttons. And what's interesting is there were people in Jimmy's camp and people in Jerry's camp just saying just stop it. If you just do this, this whole silly dance will be over. Just do this in both camps. And both men just refuse to do it. Now, when they'll get together, they're very amicable and everything was fine. And they kind of go, oh, well, you know, uh, maybe I was too harsh on this. And then one of them would say something in the media or to another one of their friends that would get back to them. And it would just set, it would set both of them off periodically.
1: Well, I just want to say one thing about this, and this goes back to something that I did in 1996 uh, when I was assigned to do a feature story about how uh, Jimmy and Jerry and Barry Switzer and Larry Lacewell had all once been big buddies. And uh, and, and especially uh, Barry, Jerry. No, I'm sorry, Barry. I get my my uh, all this names sound like mixed up. Barry, Jimmy, and Larry. we all Barry,
2: Larry, Harry. Yeah. And Mary. Yeah.
1: They were all assistants. Those three guys were assistants together at Oklahoma, and uh, and those guys were telling these great stories about all this, of the stuff they did. And they were all chagrined here, and and seemingly genuinely chagrined that Jimmy had turned his back on that friendship with all of them. I, I did not feel like they were puffing that up. I've, I really felt like that's what they really felt like. And so I did all this research. I go to Miami to talk to Jimmy about it, and Jimmy has no idea what I'm coming to talk to him about. And when I started asking these questions, he immediately goes on the defensive, and it eventually it leads to him throwing me out of the Miami Dolphins headquarters and calling up Dave Smith, our boss, and saying that if I show up at the press conference after the game, he will refuse to talk to the media. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, I, 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 looking back on that, I, I know what happened there was that Jimmy was always the guy who felt like I'm the one who gets in people's heads, not vice versa. And that Jerry and these guys were trying to get in my head. And that's what offended him. He was genuinely offended that someone was playing mind games with him. And he was the king of playing mind games. So, yeah, it's a, it's always been an a interesting relationship uh, among all those guys. And, and, you know, at least it, it was great theater. I loved it the quote David from Dak Prescott when he said, yeah. uh, "It's just another day of being a Dallas Cowboy." It's like, isn't it? The, the yeah. fact that what you had in your he, story, he said he
0: didn't. He said he didn't know he was put in. He said, but you know. There were, you know, they were in the locker room, and there were camera crews falling around. But this is just like another game, you know, for the Cowboys. Yeah,
1: and I love the fact that the, that the press conference bled over to the start of the game. I I'm mean, standing a- there watching them kick off, and there's still about another
0: six minutes to go in the press conference
1: oh my gosh i mean if, if jimmy had been the coach of the cowboys now i' oh been the gosh. kind of thing that would have driven him crazy you know that the fact that jerry's having a press conference going into the start of the game but you know because jimmy's not having a coach this team you know it's like ah what the heck sure
2: but well, jimmy, yeah, everybody- I mean, but jimmy's the center of attention there it, the game is going on and jimmy is the center of attention jerry is the center of attention not the game it's yeah. them i mean and this is again this is the thing you are i'm not i'm not Look, Jerry had the power to to be the bigger guy here and just you know put him in years ago and do what needed to be done, um, and and end this whole thing. Um, but you're talking about two huge egos, and you're talking about two guys who were going to right fight, I guess, about the whole thing, right? Who's right? Who was who deserves more credit? Um, the unbearable
1: weight of massive ego.
2: Yeah. Um, I, I still don't. Like I don't get the dynamics of it, David. Like, why this took place in Charlotte instead of, like, say Thursday in front of the Thanksgiving Day crowd or in front of before the next home game? Well, that would so take away get, from
0: Dolly. One that would take away from Dolly on Thanksgiving Day. Nothing Dolly. takes away from Dolly. Wow. Nothing takes away
2: from Dolly. How great um, would that be? But I, I just <laughs> like I just didn't get it. Like again, like you, you spread
1: could, out your signature moments. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's let's move on now. We got to get before we get out of this Cowboys podcast. We got to talk about the game on Thursday. They're going to be playing the Commanders. Uh Do team. we are we
2: in the stretch, stretch where we need to talk about any of these games?
1: Well, a little bit. Uh we, we need to talk about the fact that A, they do not need to be lining up Dak Prescott at wide receiver and throwing the football to him. Didn't can, like can, that? can you relay that to Mike McCarthy and, and tell him <laughs> how stupid that would be to get your franchise quarterback out there and throw in a pass to him? Who do you think he is, Matthew Stafford? I mean, come on. Uh, and, look, Tw- and look what happened then. Yeah, Wildcat twice. Uh, and,
0: and one time, that second time, uh, Dak ran. I, I missed the first time because I was coming back up from the press conference. <laughs> so I didn't see the first time he was not lined up at quarterback. The uh, second time, I just I was transcribing Jimmy and Jerry, and just happened to look up, and there was like, there was Dak on the edge by the sideline, running toward the end zone. I'm going, what's going on here? So, but you know, he does have one touchdown reception in his career. Yeah, that was, yeah, that, that was, that was a
1: long time ago. Let's not yeah. let's not revive any of that. And the second thing I want to talk about is Deron Bland. I I, I am fascinated by Deron Bland, who has done nothing since he was drafted except make you think is this guy maybe better than Trayvon Diggs cuz pro football focus certainly thinks so they got him ranked the second best cornerback in the league at this point and as we know PFF is not a big fan of Trayvon Diggs because he gambles so much and I, I and i like Trayvon a lot better than they do i like both of them but it but to have four pick sixes in one season a record tied by my much beloved and one of my Childhood Heroes, Ken Houston. In nineteen seventy one, he did that. And I think it was the next year that Bud Adams traded him to Washington for like 18 players who couldn't play. <laughs> uh so anyway, uh it, it's just amazing to me what Duron Bland has done. I mean, that, that interception the other day, that was a that looked like a Dion kind of interception where he was as the ball is being thrown, he is accelerating. Through the, the route and taking it away from the receiver, just an unbelievable interception. And then to, and then to you know pick himself up and score afterwards it was terrific athleticism.
0: Yeah, and, and uh, you know, McCarthy spoke about that interception after the game, about how what a wonderful job Bland did of setting it up, that he basically gave him – uh, he gave him the underneath, then to cut over. But the moment he cut to the sideline, he could he could you know take that take the angle and, and get it. So it was really uh, he was talking about his awareness, the the receiver's route route of awareness of how uh, and, and then he played into that, knowing the route that was going to be run to set up and give him a different look. Knowing well, if I give him this look, they're going to go there. And uh, he's been you know. He's a fifth-round pick. Uh, He came in last year, had an outstanding rookie season, had five interceptions, and really, he was an outside guy who moved inside its slot, especially after uh, Jordan Lewis got hurt last year with the Lins Frank injury, Uh, and just showed an ability to adapt in the slot, which a lot of corners do not. I mean – there's some good outside corners who aren't really good in the slot because you have to be a little bit more physical. There's more traffic. Um, it, it's just a different feel in space than what you have out on the corner. Uh, but now this year you had Diggs and you put him back out there and you go, well, there's going to be a step down because Diggs is so good. Diggs is a Pro Bowl corner, but he should be able to hold his own. Well, he's not only held his own, I mean, I, I would be surprised if he's not making the NFL all defensive teams. Uh, he's certainly in the conversation. And what you have, you know, the criticisms, I think the criticisms of Trayvon Diggs are overblown for how good of a player he is. I think people focus on his uh, his very few warts and make them worse than what they are. But um, Deron Bland is a more sure tackler. Uh, and he, I hate to say he doesn't gamble as much as Diggs, And I think that's, I think that's unfair to Diggs too. I mean, I, I think he takes by and large, uh, he takes, he makes good decisions when he gambles. He's not a reckless gambler. Although some people like to portray him that way, but well, you don't see bland miss a play and then give up a big one. Right. And that's no. what you would see with Diggs from time to time. It was the all-or-nothing one. Uh, you don't get much of an all-or-nothing with, with Bland. You're getting like
1: all or, um, you know, he he's not going to get burned. I just don't – I can't remember in a long time when they've had the kind of cornerback they've had – the cornerback play they've had over the last – two or three years. Um, and this age,
0: these two guys
1: at this age, knowing you can keep them both in that – I mean, that that's a,
0: If you have a them
2: both thing. on the field, I mean, you've got an incredible you've, – you've got an incredible mix, you know I mean? It, it, yeah. It, uh, it, it would be – it's, it's going to be hard for teams to pass against the two of them on the field at the same time. It really is. So
0: especially with that pass rush, right? You, you yeah. keep that pass rush intact, which you will for another year or two, you would imagine. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the recipe here is for, again, a, a defense that can sustain and is near the top at or near the top of the league year in and year out. And it's been a long, long time since uh, the Cowboys have been able to make that claim.
1: Let me ask you this, David, before we get out of the Cowboys segment. Uh, so just as you said, w- w- you know, when Trayvon Davis comes back next year, I'm, I'm assuming that Stephon Gilmore probably will not be back with the Cowboys next year. Well, you know we're
0: we're talking about Stephen Gilmore has been outstanding too. He's a solid, solid guy. He's not uh, he's not peak Stephen Gilmore anymore because of his age, but he's still one of the better corners in the league. And you hate to just say you dismiss him and go from there, but you do have to make choices for the cap and going forward. And of course, you've already signed Diggs to a long term deal. Uh, You're not close to needing to do that with Bland. Uh, you know, maybe you get Gilmore back for another year, but these two guys basically give you the ability to, okay, let's draft another corner or two here and start to develop them. You know, you didn't hit with Calvin Joseph. Uh, you didn't hit on that draft where you took a couple of corners, but Bland really bails them out, a fifth round pick that uh is able to do what he did. And, and now you look at it, uh they they have two really from a talent, skill, and production standpoint in Diggs and Bland two Pro Bowl corners going forward.
1: One was taken in the second round. One was taken in the fifth round. Yeah, pretty impressive. Does that mean that, because of everything you just laid out there with that, as well as the pass rush and and those players, do you think Dan Quinn's coming back here next year as a defensive coordinator? He, I believe he'll leave for a
0: head coaching job if it's a, I think he's going to be very selective with a head coaching job. I think he feels at this stage of his career that I've seen other guys who just take it to take it and are in bad situations and can't just can't get it done. And he likes it enough here. And there are a lot of elements he likes of not being a head coach. He loves just the the hands-on, you know, working with the players. Uh and, and this can be a special defensive group. This can be one that actually kind of puts his name, when you're talking about the best, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here, but with the continuity they have and the age of their, their top players, you can be talking about a, a defense that, that's put in the same breath as, as other great defenses in NFL history. And I think that appeals to him. So he's not just going to go and take a job. It would have to be a job he feels he can step in right away and win big.
2: The only thing yeah. that's lacking in his career as a coach, right, is completing a Super Bowl win as the head coach. Yes. Um, and that's, he was that. so close. He's won a yeah. Super Bowl as a defensive coordinator in Seattle. He's on the. He's, he's got a great defense here. I don't see this guy leaving unless it's an opportunity where a team is – where it's a good opportunity. Not to go in and take over a rebuilding franchise and a complete retool. It's got to be an opportunity where you can go in – and make a legitimate difference and have a chance to win the Super Bowl. He's not that guy who needs to be able to say, I was a head coach. He's been there.
0: And Jerry is paying him enough where he can do that. And two, if things don't go work out for Mike McCarthy here, as long as Dan Quinn is here, he is the
1: heir apparent. Yeah, that's interesting. It's so all stuff to talk about later. All right, that's going to do it for the Cowboys segment of our podcast. We're going to have to let David go. He's got real work to do, and I like the I like Evan and I were just sitting I around eating bonbons. I don't bonds. know about real work, but it's work. Yeah, yeah, it's work. All right. So, so David, thanks for for joining us. Uh, we'll see you next week, uh, and I, I'll actually see you out there uh, Thursday. Uh, uh, at uh, nice, at we can the share a Thanksgiving meal. At yeah, you bring 8-E-T. you bring the dressing. I'll bring the turkey. Okay. <laughs> i'll bring a turkey okay. pot pie how's that, that that's okay. not bad turkey pot pie can work sure yeah i love it lived on them practically
2: you bring the dressing i'll all right. bring the turkey all right, that's
1: good until that started singing that was all great okay all right let's move over and talk about the rangers and and, and first of all we're going to talk about an old ranger you know not the lone ranger but an old ranger and that's Adrian Beltre who is on the Hall of Fame ballot this year. And I got to think that Adrian Beltre is the first ballot Hall of Famer, isn't he? Evan?
2: Yeah, I think he is. Um you're talking about one of the five best third basemen of all time.
1: Yeah, um, it's really hard to find third baseman. You know, that's it's the I, I, are there fewer third basemen in, in the Hall of Fame than any other position?
2: I believe that is correct, yeah. 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 There's not
1: that many great ones.
2: But, I mean, just take everything into consideration, right? He's, you know, if you want to look at the longevity element, he's got 3,000 hits and 450-plus home runs. Um, You look at the, the fielding element, he's got five gold gloves and is considered the best defensive third baseman of a generation. Look at the personality, and, I mean, nobody played the game with as much joy or intensity combined as Adrian did. Um, and it, it, he just checks off all the boxes. You know, I, I it's, um uh, it, yeah, it's a slam dunk for me. Will he get 100% of the votes? No, he won't get 100% of the votes because only one guy ever has. But uh, I expect that Adrian will be a first ballot Hall of Famer with over 90% of the votes.
1: You know, it's funny when you go back and look at that, when John Daniel signed him uh, for that in 2011, 2011 season, um, that was not a big deal. I mean, it, fans here didn't go crazy. It wasn't a huge reaction from anybody about him being signed. I mean, it was considered a good deal. You're getting a good player. He'd, he'd had a really good season for the Red Sox. But I remember that there was a feeling like, oh, well, you know, he had been a disappointment in Seattle, and he'd come up. He was really good for the Dodgers. Disappointment in Seattle. He had a career year in uh, Boston, and there was even talk that – This is a guy that when he's in a contract year, he plays really well. And then, then, then he just kind of averaged after that. Well, he had the 40,
2: he had had the 40 home run season in, in LA, um, in his contract year. And then in Seattle, he played on some bad teams and clearly the power numbers did drop in Seattle because it wasn't a hitter friendly ballpark. Um, and it was, you know, in some ways it was considered a, a bad contract. Um, but that was the first half of his career. You know, Adrian had an entire second half of his career in Boston and with the Rangers. And I, 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 I think the the narrative when Adrian signed with the Rangers after the two thousand and ten season was was this. Um, and part of the reason it wasn't a it wasn't considered a bigger um, get for the Rangers is because you know there had been so much. Emphasis placed on re-signing Cliff Lee to the point where, you know, Chuck Greenberg flew off to, to Arkansas to give Cliff Lee presents and everything. Um, and Cliff Lee decided to sign with Philadelphia. And so the, the thought was Adrian was kind of the consolation prize at that point, that you didn't get the guy who had taken you to the world series and who had pitched so well in the playoffs. And so how are you going to improve his pitching staff? Well, the thought was, if you can't improve the pitchers, help them get more outs. And so you got this great defensive third baseman in Adrian Beltre who had a, had good offensive abilities, but was, you know, I think more well known for his, his defense, quite frankly, at that point than he was as a, as an offensive threat. I mean, he was a good offensive threat. I just think that the it was sold more that this was a great defensive third baseman. Um, and so that was the narrative when he signed, um, I don't think anybody expected that Adrian was going to be become the the face of this franchise in a lot of ways, the way he did, you know, for a decade, Adrian was, was more the face of this franchise than anybody else. So, um, yeah, I, I it wasn't. It wasn't like they went out and targeted Adrian as the very first thing in, in in free agency. It was. It was about Cliff. And when they didn't get Cliff, man, pivoting to Adrian Beltray turned out to be a great, great move.
1: Uh, no question about it. And for, and for another thing, it, it took Michael Young off at third base, where he was clearly not comfortable, and allowed him uh, to move over. And then they got you know a, a terrific third baseman in the bargain for the best third baseman in baseball. So it was, uh, it was, uh, I, you know, I, if you're going to rank John Daniels moves over the, uh, over his tenure, that that's gotta be in the top three uh, signing Adrian Beltre as a free agent.
2: Look, you signed him to a five-year $80 million deal with a, with a potential for a six year. And what you got out of Adrian Beltre was eight seasons and every penny, he was worth every penny that you paid for him. Um, free agent deals, particularly for guys in their thirties don't work out that way. It was, it was a home run of a deal for the Rangers, um, for Beltre, uh, and for John Daniels. And yeah, I mean, there's, there were, were trades that John Daniels made that were, that were huge. But I, I think if you went back and said free agent signings, this was the best free agent signing the Rangers made in, in John's 17 years as GM.
1: Well, you can make the argument other than the uh well, Nolan Ryan one, which is mostly a figurative one, uh, but from a pure performance standpoint, the best free agent signing the Rangers ever had.
2: Uh yeah, I mean and, and, and listen, John was the G at Wills was president of baseball operations for the Seeger and Simeon signings. So I don't wanna I don't wanna diminish those, but you've you had eight years of Adrian, um, and, and you've only had two years of Seeger and Simeon. Uh, yeah. To this point, but I think the same the same thing applied that these were these were cornerstone pillar type pieces that you could that y- you know you thought you were going to actually do do what is not usually expected, which is to get the full value out of a mega a mega hundred million dollar contract.
1: Yeah, no question about it. All right. Well, all the best to uh, Adrian uh, on that. Uh, he certainly deserves. Well, wow, all the
2: best. That. That's yeah. just like that. That's so dismissive. Really. Yeah, all the best what? to him. What do you oh, yeah. against Adrian I, I, if I
1: said, Oh yeah, you jerk. You know that that wouldn't have been dismissive. All the best. That's dismissive to you. Yeah, all the best. Very
2: all the best. Like let's move him on out of here. Come on. Wow. I, can I just? Know, I will say that you this.
1: need to work on your communication skills because when people say all the best, that is generally interpreted as a good thing. It That's was not the words. Right.
2: It, it was the tone in your voice. But I will say this. We both saw Adrian Beltre's reaction when Martín Perez gave him the World Series trophy on the field after this World Series. Um, I thought it was a really touching move by Martín, and the thing that just blew me away was just how overjoyed Adrian was. To he was really into it during the World Series. You know, this is a guy who has put his family first now and really in, enjoys being a dad, but clearly. Winning this World Series for the Rangers also relieved a burden that Adrian had that he felt like he did not bring a World Series here. And it was really touching to see that reaction.
1: Well, he even said that, you know, a lot of guys might think it, but he even said it. You know, I thought about that when when we were writing those stories uh, during the World Series run about – you know, I didn't want to diminish what any of those guys had done on those teams, right? You know, you know, Michael Young, and Kinsler, Josh Hamilton, all of those guys, Nelly Cruz. What all of them did was phenomenal. You know, gotten the, the two World Series, and and all of that was a lot of fun to watch, and it was, those were great accomplishments. Uh, but for I didn't really know how. They would take these things and what's happening and the questions about it. And, and naturally, you would be a little defensive when I ask about the, these sorts of things. But when Adrian said that, that he felt like that they were going to do something and relieve this burden. It's like, man, that's really something for a guy to come out and say that. So, yeah, it uh, was really all the best. It was. to Adrian Beltre. Uh,
2: much, I mean, better, much, much better. Much better. there. I like that. Term.
1: All the best to everybody that I see from now on. Just despite Evan. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the current Rangers now. Let's talk about the fact that uh I wrote in a column the other day after you practically threw me off a cliff, uh, if I didn't write it, that the Rangers were not gonna sign Shohei Otani, uh, and they're not probably not gonna re-sign Jordan Montgomery. And, uh, and as a matter of fact, they're probably gonna just spend, I don't know, fifteen or twenty million dollars uh this winter after they after they do everything. So, with that all in mind, and the fact that they are uh, not going to spend big bucks on free agents, the the biggest improvements that can be made to this club will probably be done in the matter of trades. And there's been a lot. There's been one that's been speculated a lot, not a not a particular trade, but for a particular person, and that is for Milwaukee's Corbin Burns, who um, will be a free agent after this season. So, Evan. Outline for me how it's possible that the Rangers could, first of all, would they be interested in Corbin Burns? And secondly, uh, how could they do a deal for him?
2: Well, I mean, I I think what's speculated is, look, that Corbin Burns is he's an ace-level pitcher. Um, and so th- th- certainly that's something that the Rangers would be interested in. Where it makes sense for the Rangers, I think, is I, I think every team would love to go out and trade for a controllable, upper-tier starting pitcher. Um, Those are few and far between, often unobtainable, and if they are unobtainable, you've got to give up the farm for them. You've got to give up a huge package for them. If you are in a position where you feel like your minor league system is going to develop pitching, and the Rangers, they have to feel that way. Um, They have to feel that that the Lighters and the Owen Whites and the Kamar Rockers and... Um, uh, Jose Corniel's and and those gr- that group is going to start filtering up. They're not opposed to adding a guy who's a short term who's who's a short term deal. Um, and maybe you know, if you're willing to take a guy who's only got one year left, maybe you're not paying as high a price. Maybe you're paying a more realistic price so that's where i think the rangers would investigate burns and i think where it makes some sense for them um hey the rangers traded for a guy who had one year left on his contract and a rental at the deadline this year this past year in scherzer and jordan montgomery they are in a position where they want to continue this window and if they can make trades like that in the short term especially with the number of big contracts that they've still got on the books it makes a little bit more sense. You can only do this if you feel like your farm system is going to be productive after this year. Um, And that's the big unknown. But that's where – that's the way the Rangers are approaching things this year is that they're certainly amenable to talking about guys who only have one year left on their deal.
1: Yeah, this is where, to me, it's a little bit of the genius of of Chris Young uh, is that uh, he's got a little Dave Dombrowski in him. You know, uh, uh, you know, Dave Dombrowski is is always proven wherever he's been. Look, I, I don't, I don't care about these guys. I don't care about what you say, how much potential they have. I want to win right now. These guys are not going to keep me employed. Uh, Winning keeps me employed. And, and I got to tell you, I'm, I lean, if I'm going to tilt one way or the other on a general manager scale, I'm going to, I'm going to tilt towards Dave Dombrowski because, that is the truth, and most of the time these guys don't pan out, and and the fans can can scream and whine all they want to about players getting traded, but you know flags fly forever, and what what Chris Young showed this year was that you know that trade for Jordan Montgomery they they gave up a couple of good players for him, uh, and uh, and you know they gave up a, a good player for uh, Max Scherzer, but. For sure, they wouldn't have made it to the World Series without Jordan Montgomery. And I'm not so sure they, you know, Max Scherzer played a part as well. And then they're going to have him next year. So I I'm, I think this is a, a really good thing to, to think about. I hadn't even considered uh, the prospects of Corbin Burns. I was mostly thinking that if they're going to make a deal, you you, you shot Leone Tavares uh, and perhaps Justin Foscue or, or Ezekiel Duran, whoever you got to do to back that up. And I was thinking more of a, of a top-flight closer, you know, like a David Bednar with Pittsburgh. But if you could do that to me for for a year of Corbin Burns, and you could give up one of those guys, then I mean, maybe one of those guys and a little extra, uh, then I, I would I would certainly th- uh, think that'd be a, a good move.
2: Yeah, I don't know exactly what the price would be on Burns, um, but it's certainly something that they would uh, that that they would consider, um, and. I think it's something that will, you know, will get talked about as this winter develops. Um, and to me it just is much more feasible than the idea of paying 22, 23 million dollars a year for Josh Hader or paying 25 million dollars a year for Jordan Montgomery or the idea of paying 50 million dollars a year for Shohei Ohtani. They've they, they they've spent the they've spent those sums to get where they're at. What they need to do now is um is maintain.
1: What would they, what would, what is Burns making this year? I don't even know. I don't know. I
2: I don't know if he's, uh, I'd have to look it up. I haven't looked up the contracts. Um, Well, uh, while you're looking that up, I'll, uh,
1: I'll talk about these possibilities because as it looks right now, obviously we, we talked about this before going into the 2024 season what will the Rangers do with all these outfielders they suddenly got? You know, that's, that's the crazy thing is that for years, a decade, you know, they had a dearth of outfielders. It was like that's how Adolis Garcia even got into the mix anyway. It's like, well, why not? Let's just put him out there. You, you've you got so many uh, other poor options. And now all of a sudden they're bubbling over with outfielders.
2: Well, I, all right. So Burns is has is got one more year of arbitration, and his, he was at 10-5 this year. So, I mean, I think you can expect that to go – well above fifteen um, in in arbitration. Um, to your point on uh, the outfield depth, there are a lot of different ways to look at this, right? You can look at the at, at the outfield and the idea that Wyatt Langford uh, very possible, very probably figures into the twenty twenty four plans, and say, well, we've got outfield depth, we can trade one. The other thing you can do is say, "Look, we we're going to lose a DH in Mitch Garver. We're going to have to DH some guys. It might make some sense if we can DH the three different outfield, the well, four different outfielders essentially, and rotate them through to keep all those guys fresh. Um, that gives the ability for you to get uh, Adolis Garcia off his feet once a week, say." gives you the ability to occasionally rest Evan Carter if you don't want to face him against a left-handed pitcher. It gives you some options. I do think what the Rangers also have to consider here is you look at their two middle infielders, and I know Marcus Simeon set a major league record with 850-plus plate appearances this year, and I know that Corey Seager played a lot of games at shortstop when he was healthy, but I think that the Rangers also feel like maybe going forward we'd like it if we could occasionally rotate one of the middle infielders into the DH spot to give them a little bit of a break. And if you're using those four outfielders as your DH, then all of a sudden it's, it's hard to do that. So um, uh, that's something else to consider is whether they should go with more, like a more, go with a more traditional DH and then have somebody, you know, as a backup infielder, like a Duran, who could give Simeon or Seager a day off if they need it every 10 days, because you are talking about two guys who are, who are going to to be in their thirties. And I don't think it's, it's wise to expect 850 at bats from a guy um, year after year. Uh, So these are the, these are the scenarios that I think the Rangers are playing out in, in in their head. Um, And I think they both make some sense. You know, the thing is if it was a, if it was an absolutely perfect team and they didn't need to do anything, um, that would be, that would be the the outlier right you know there's still some work that needs to be done and and nobody's got enough depth to cover it all up you're going to have to leave your expo- yourself exposed somewhere in order to fill other holes and i think the bigger holes that this team is feel is is thinking about right now are you know still in the rotation and and still at the back end of the bullpen
1: yeah i, I don't as far as the dh situation is concerned i don't think most teams anymore think I have a full-time DH. I think everybody thinks about it as we want to run guys through here and give them a day's off. I, I don't think you're ever going to talk Marcus Simeon into sitting down. Frankly, I don't even think Bruce Bochy ever even tried to talk him into it. I think he is so locked into that. That's his persona and that's who he is. That's what he wants to be. Uh, you know, the fact that he wouldn't sit him down in the world series. And at the end it, it paid off because he finally did hit there the last couple of games. Um, I just don't think it's ever going to happen. I I do think you can talk Corey Seager into it. I think you can get Corey Seager to sit down, you know, once every couple of weeks, you know. uh, And I do think there's a way to do all that. I I don't know how you can justify it when your center fielder is a switch hitter. So uh, I I think that uh, that's why Leone Tavares probably – I wouldn't mind seeing him being traded for somebody and trading him – uh, when his stock is high, I think look, his stock look, is pretty look, high right now. And of, I, I all just, the,
2: of all the guys on the big league roster, if I was you know voting somebody most likely to be traded, it would be Leote. Um, yeah, because of that, because there is depth in the outfield, um, because he is uh, he, his value is higher than it has ever been, and he certainly looks like the guy that the Rangers. Um, The Rangers talked up his his potential like he's closer to reaching that potential, Um, even though, you know, his first three years in the big leagues, really, he hadn't he hadn't come close to that. So um, his value is high. And if the Rangers can turn that into something that addresses one of their weaknesses, it's certainly something they have to consider.
1: Plus he's uh plus he's he's still just what twenty five years old so there's there's some real value in in Leota, and, uh and I think the teams could really use him. I a, I want to say Evan and this is something that uh, is interesting to me to consider. We all jumped on the uh, Evan Carter bandwagon and, and why not? The guy set a World Series record, you know, with nine or a playoff record with nine doubles. That's just unbelievable. You know, he's been up for twenty minutes and he's already set a uh, playoff record but his struggles against left-handers were real you know it wasn't just that the numbers didn't look good he didn't look good he looked really good against all right-handers every at bat was a good at bat against left-handers the, the swings and messes were pretty ugly at times
2: yeah but i mean i think he had a total of like 20 22 plate appearances against lefties it's an it it it's um it's something to be aware of. And it's certainly something that, you know, I think the Rangers clearly thought was going to be something of an issue going in. Uh, I don't think it I, I, I don't think it um, I, I think it's something that is certainly addressable at this at this point, you know. Well,
1: sure. I mean, he's twenty-one years old. Uh, but it, it, the the way to address is just what you were talking about. If you did have him out there, and if you did want to sit him down, uh, on days against certain left-handers, then that's certainly a, a doable thing, and that would and that opens up things for other people as well. All right, that's going to do it for our, our Rangers segment of our podcast. We want to get over and, and talk about colleges now because we're getting pretty close to the wire here. Uh, got uh, one last weekend of the regular season uh, this week, and then we'll uh, and then we'll have conference championship games the following weekend, and then uh, we'll know who's going to be in the college football playoff. And as it looks right now, the teams are have. have have pretty much just remained the same. The top is just a big log jam. Uh, we haven't seen any kind of movement, which is a little unusual uh, in the CFP over the last few years. There's usually been a, uh, a lot of movement even at the top, uh, but not so much this year. Uh, the, the Texas in particular still stuck at seven. Uh, they're, they continue to win, but they're not exactly dominating anybody. They they barely held off TCU. They, they look Pretty good against Iowa State, and that's a team they haven't beaten. And these were, you know, significant wins for Texas because it got them to ten wins. Uh, they hadn't done that since uh, Tom Herman's best year, and and they also uh, beat Iowa State and TCU, which have been problematic for them for the last ten years. And so uh, those were uh, significant wins, but they're not the they weren't the kind of wins that impressed the committee. Uh, now the thing that Texas has going for them is that well. Quinn Ewers was coming back from an injury and that was his first two games back. And he was okay. In both of those games, they, they, they lost, you know, uh, Jonathan Brooks, who's a really terrific running back and that was a significant loss for them. Uh, and so CJ Baxter stepped in and, and had a hundred yard rushing game and that was good. Uh, one thing that the ESPN noted that was really in Texas's favor is that their defensive line has just been terrific. Uh, and, that will go over big with the coaches on the committee. When you have NFL caliber players uh, in your line, they like that that sort of thing. So I think that, that will act in Texas' favor. But I don't know, um, uh, you know, other than the fact that, you know, Florida State lost its quarterback, and so maybe that will be an issue for them. And uh, if Louisville could knock off Florida State, that would get a team out of the way for Texas – and then, of course, we'll we'll find out who wins between Michigan and Ohio State. That will knock off one of those teams. Um, if if Alabama should beat Georgia in the SEC championship game, I'd have to believe that the committee will still go with Texas over Alabama. What do you think about that?
2: If Alabama beats Georgia, yeah. Um. I think if Alabama beats Georgia, it's going to be hard to, again, you're going to have the same argument about two SEC teams, um, but Texas does have a win over Alabama. I will say this, to me, Jalen Milrow looks like a completely different quarterback than the quarterback I saw against Texas. Um, I also, you know, I also know that Texas is dealing with the Xavier Worthy injury too, um, and that is liable to impact the offense as well. Uh, So I'm just not sure exactly where Texas is uh, as they they get ready for the Big 12 championship game, though I've been told that no team has clinched a spot in the Big 12 championship game as of this point. I I, I think there was some thought on Saturday night that one team had, and then the Big 12 had to clarify that on Sunday morning, that no, nobody has.
1: No, I didn't see that I missed that. I didn't miss the clarification. No, that was good.
2: You okay. know, I I I think, you know, it's going to be hard for me to see a situation even if Georgia loses to Alabama, I feel like Georgia's going to end up being in the champion, in the, in the playoff based on the last on the last two years. Um, I think Alabama then would be in the playoff. I think you get one big 10 team and I guess the question comes down to do you end up with the Pac-12 champion or do you end up with Texas?
1: Well, uh, or if Florida State wins, you know, you got if Florida State wins out, how do you how do you drop them from? Well, if, of, if they
2: if they're without a quarterback, you know.
1: Well, I guess that's a possibility if they were if they're missing their quarterback and they just determine that the they're they're weakened because of that. And, well, I got to yeah. tell you, I
2: watched the Florida State Miami, uh, the Louisville Miami game on Saturday, and I just, I, I, well, I, Louisville's not going to make the playoff, but you know they're going to play in the ACC championship and both those teams were just undisciplined um didn't really execute to me there's just a big there's a big drop-off between like the top five and after that well
1: sure no question about that yeah I watched the SMU game Saturday. that was the game I watched mostly and uh and I was impressed with how SMU kept coming back uh you know whenever they were challenged uh uh against Memphis and and that's not a huge game uh, I I will say this there were there were plays made in that game and I thought it that people just did not look athletic. You know, it, yeah. it, it was, it was, uh, it's clearly a step down. Uh, SU is playing really well. Congrats to SMU. All the best to SMU, uh, which, uh, you know, is on track now to win a conference championship for the first time since 1982, I believe, uh, which is really remarkable that it's been that long since Kevin, SMU. Kevin, you, you went to
2: Texas TCU, you watched Texas Iowa State. Do they look to you right now like a team that you'd be comfortable with seeding as a playoff team?
1: No. I think they're really close. I I think, you know, because here's the thing. You just can't ever tell. When Quinn Ewers is on and he is playing really well, like he did against Alabama, like he did against Oklahoma, like he did, you know, last year against Alabama, well, my gosh, I think they can play with anybody, you know, the, the problem is you just don't always know what version of Quinn Ewers you're going to get. Um, I, I, I think that's what's tantalizing about him as an NFL prospect. But I, at this point, I don't even know if he's going to turn pro. Yeah. You know, if, if I'm if I'm advising Quinn Ewers, if I'm his agent, I say, son, let's, let's go back to Texas for one more year. And who cares what happens with Arch Manning or any of the rest of that stuff? I think you need one more really good year of college football and then at a top level like this, and then you'll make some real money. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what scouts are saying about him right now. I don't know if they're advising people. You know, there was all this talk about him being a first round pick, and he he may be a first round pick. Um, so I don't. I, I think if he's a first round pick, then he's not coming back. But um, it, it, he he needs he needs a little bit of work. But your but to your point, yeah, I, I just. I don't feel comfortable with what all they're doing right now. Uh, they're, they, they they seem to lack a killer instinct. At the end of games, they're, they don't they don't put their foot down on people's necks, and that's. I, mean, and I,
2: that's I, I, I don't play. know what it is. I just, having watched them the last couple of weeks, I just feel like I don't feel they're one of the four. It, I, I don't feel they're one of the four best teams. They're playing as one of the four best teams in the country right now. No, nah, I
1: don't think so either. All right, let's talk about the coaching uh, searches here a little bit. Uh, so supposedly Jeff Trailer of UTSA has interviewed with Texas A&M.
2: It's a damn shame we're talking about this because 18 seniors went out on Saturday night. I guess you, you I guess you didn't see the Jeff Trailer pro- post-game press conference.
1: No, I didn't see that. What did he say? I
2: guess, I guess the media was scolded for asking him about the interview. Um, yeah that he oh, went really? on I didn't yeah.
1: know that well, yeah. maybe you should have interviewed them. Yeah. Uh, that, that's no, always
2: no, my point is if you don't want the questions brought up then don't go through with the interview. There's a simple solution yeah. to
1: this. Yeah, no, no question but that's what he should have said. I'll talk to you after the season is over. Yeah. Uh, of course that's the thing is that the reason why Texas A&M fired Jimbo Fisher when it <laughs> is because they're trying to get ahead here. They're trying to to get ahead on recruiting and the transfer portal and lord knows what else. And so uh I'll say this about Jeff Trailer, and maybe that's why he was a little bit cranky. If he's interviewed, as he, as everybody says he has, uh, and they still haven't hired him, I think that's a bad sign. You know, I, I think that means you're not number one. You can't interview a guy, and then weeks later, come back to him and say, okay, yeah, we're going to hire you after all. I, I just don't, I, I first of all, I don't think that it's possible that they could have told him okay we're gonna hire you but we'll keep it quiet so you get to finish your nice UTSA yeah season. I, I, I don't
2: I don't That's know how that happen. works um I also That's don't know happen. I don't know how you conduct a, a coaching search you know in season um unless unless somebody's willing to like again like Dion um walk out of the locker room and get on a plane and go to to Boulder um, right. so I, I yeah I don't i I don't I don't have a good feeling about Jeff Trailer getting the A&M job at this point. And I guess that's why you should, if you're him, you take umbrage at being asked about the, the, the interview that you went on. Um,
1: I don't I know. Think, I brought this up to you. I think he should be, I think he's, he, well, A&M, and m a and not going to care, but I think that it's not a lock that Dave Aranda comes back, even though, That's back roads higher. Uh, He comes back at Baylor. They've just been miserable the last two years. I don't know how they sell that. I think that that Jeff Traylor should be a candidate for that job. Uh, For that matter, he should be a candidate for the job at Houston, where Dana Holgerson finally has run out of lives, I think, uh, and and Tillman Fertita, who is the big bucks behind the the Houston program these days and and probably the biggest bucks the the Houston program has ever had behind it. Uh, And I – I think that uh, Jeff Trader would be a great hire there, and I'm going to throw another name into the to the to the pile here, and that is Willie Fritz of Tulane, who has in the last two years won 22 games at Tulane. They went from 2005 to 2011 without winning 22 games. This yeah. guy is done an unbelievable job. He coached at Blend, of course. He coached at Sam Houston State. He's always coached at places kind of around here. Uh, and he is sixty-three years old, which is should be a little bit of a concern for you. But I gotta tell you, it's hard for me to overlook the fact that the guy has won so much at Tulane.
2: That's that's all a great point, Kevin. I would just point out to you that um Lane Kiffin has won what twenty seven games in the last three years at Ole Miss. Yeah. Um that's in the SEC, you know. Uh,
1: oh, well, we're talking about Texas A&M, absolutely. You got, I mean, I've already written that. They they should hire Lane Kemp. You know, and, of course, the response was – what response I got was from everybody was that, oh, he is not a cultural fit for Texas A&M, you know. And here's what I would say to that. That's what they always say about coaches at Texas A&M. I would say is that maybe the Aggies should concentrate on hiring a good football coach first and then worry, the, uh, worry about whether he's a – cultural fit or not
2: yeah you know i, I don't it, even know what that means cultural fit that basically means that you're that, that you have a very specific um that if, if if you're if if a coach is not a cultural fit for the university what does it say about the players you know well uh, yeah i,
1: I don't under, you know I, look it used to mean something back when i covered uh college sports in the 80s on a regular basis um you know, you'd walk on the A&M campus, and you knew where you were. I mean, this is, this is A&M. It's different, you know. It was primarily uh, a, a college for rural kids, and uh, everybody said, howdy to you, and, and, it, and it looked different, and it was great, and that was all part of the their their deal. You walk on any college football campus these days, and it's so homogenized you couldn't even tell where you are. I don't care where you go. Kids all look the same now. They all act the same. They sound the same. Uh, And I think this is a lot of this has to do with social media. So to your point about the players and themselves, they should be the same everywhere. Now, I, I do think that at A&M, they kind of pride themselves on their military background and, and, and what that has meant and their conservative background and, and what that looks like and what the kind of coach you had. And and I had people tell me, well, you can say what you want about Jimbo Fisher, and, right? He didn't pan out, but he had integrity and he had character. And I don't know about that. <laughs> I, I don't know I, that, that Jimbo Fisher was any paragon of virtue as a as a head football coach.
2: I, I, I Listen, I don't know how you – I don't know how you measure virtue among coaches when basically the idea is win, when at all costs, win. um, right. and if you don't win, well, we'll give you a $76 million payout and you can go off into the great blue yonder, but it's about winning. And listen, I can sit here and tell you that I feel like Kirby smart has been a great icon. Um, has been great for the program. He said, uh, he said something great after the Tennessee game again, uh, following the win over Tennessee the other day. But look, Georgia had all kinds of problems in its program if we're talking about the behavior of kids at the end of last year, you know, and it sure. resulted in the death of a young woman. So as proud as I am that Kirby Smart is running the program at the university that I that I consider myself a fan of, it's it's impossible to say – What constitutes integrity among football coaches? You've got how big are the staffs that you're trying to manage when you're talking about players, staff, boosters. It's just hard to run that in a way that there's not going to be some hiccups along the way. So um, I think everybody's got good aims. I think it's hard sometimes to be on top of all that. Let's just put it that way
1: yeah i think that's very well said I, I i agree with you uh i just don't think people should out of hand dismiss them and I, of course i had there were people who were a thousand other reasons why lane kevin wouldn't go to to texas a&m and, and to me the, the one of the main reasons you should hire him is to get just to get under jimbo's skin when you're paying him that seven million dollars every year just the fact this is the guy that that drove jimbo crazy the last couple of years and he was 3-0 and against jimbo so usually that's what happens is that once you've watched a guy come in and, and mop up your team or your coach, you go out and get the guy that did all that. Uh, so we'll, we'll see what AM does. I, I'm still, frankly, uh, uh, I don't have a good handle on on what they've been very good at uh, uh, keeping things close to vest, which tells you that it's one or two people who are making these decisions. Uh, and uh, we'll see what they come up with. Uh, but I would expect – this decision will have to be made probably uh, after the conference championship games is when I'm, I'm thinking that, that A&M would make an announcement because at that time, you know, you've got to get going on all these uh, – uh, the transfer portal and all these recruits and everything else you got to do in college football these days. All right, that's going to do it for our podcast this week. We thank you for uh, tuning in and listening to us. We wish you a very happy Thanksgiving. We'll be back next week and be able to talk about some of this stuff a little more in depth, hopefully, and we'll see where everything is at that time. So from everybody in here to everybody out there, thanks, and we'll see you next time.